Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is episode number 151 with our guest, David Frangioni. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Well, hey there. Thank you so much for joining us. You are tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Since childhood, there's been one constant in David Frangioni's life, music. After battling cancer at the age of two, David found an escape in drumming. By the age of 12, he was playing gigs around Boston and started an audio technology consulting business when he was just 16. Today, David is an entrepreneur, an award-winning music businessman, a producer, engineer, author, and drummer, and the founder of Audio One. But really, you'll see that doesn't even begin to tell his story. He is a recipient of dozens of gold and platinum albums with credits including Aerosmith, The Stones, Ringo Starr, Elton John, Sting, Brian Adams, Kiss, Journey, Styx, Shakira, Rascal Flatts, Ozzy Osbourne, Cher, and hundreds more. In 2011, Inspire and Develop Artists, All Access IDA, was launched to help aspiring artists realize their dreams and goals. It's a high-octane artist development system that has been described as Tony Robbins meets American Idol. How cool is that? And it's served hundreds of artists. There is so much more to these words. Help me welcome our guest today. It is David Frangioni. How are you, sir? Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't, like I said, doing research and reading your bio, that doesn't even, I mean, that tells a story, right? But that doesn't tell the story. Is that how you also see it? Yes. It's, you know, living a a full life as I try to every day. Um, You know, it gets gets a little tough to to give an an elevator pitch or or consolidate all of the different things. Uh, But you know, that was a great intro. Thank you for that. Uh, we also have to add publisher of Modern Drummer because I'm very proud of uh, of that. Uh, you know, it's been about six months now, but uh, it's a great honor. I have an amazing team there. It's the world's number one drum magazine. And uh, it's kind of a dream come true in being able to steward, uh, you know, a, uh, a Bible of drumming that I grew up on. And now here I am as publisher 
Uh, so, hmm. you know, lot, 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 lot to accomplish every day. It's interesting. You said uh, sort of like a dream come true. I, you know, someone in your in your position today, in, in your stature, really, in your accomplishments, and least of which in your journey, where you've come from, there must have been from birth till now lots of dreams coming true. That's right. Absolutely, lots. And yep. uh, and I would have been. Uh, you know, when, when I was growing up and coming really from nothing as far as I had a wonderful family. So to me, that's everything. But in terms of material uh, items or, you know, uh, anything that you would call uh, above lower middle class, you know, very blue collar, tough neighborhood, tough upbringing, no, no opportunities, really kind of that, that my neighborhood was, you know, you ended up, you know, doing a remedial job following, you know, some task related hourly career or you went to jail. And mm. so um so coming from that beginning any one dream at that time just seemed like you know that would be amazing but as you learn and grow you realize that every mountain just reveals another. So and and dreams in a lot of cases will follow along with that and um you know I'm very thankful. I mean if you want to sum me up in one word it's grateful. What is, I, I like that phrase, every mountain reveals another. Explain that to the listener. What, what does that really mean? What does that look like in your world? It means that you set your focus so much on a goal, right? Even if there's 20 at the same time, you can only do one at a time, no matter how many there are. So we'll, so we'll use that as the blueprint because it's important to recognize that, that it doesn't limit the quantity to one by any means, but it does give you the, the roadmap. And so the roadmap is always one at a time. And, um, and so that means that you're climbing this mountain with this ferocious, uh, you know, desire to accomplish the goal. And uh, whether it's work with an artist or finish a song or finish a mix or get a company to be successful, or there's, there's a myriad in my case of, of goals. And there's goals within goals, right? If I'm finishing an album, Every song on the album is an individual goal that you have to finish. And then when the album's done, the goal is to sell records and make and go into marketing. An and, and then when you sell records, like you want to sell more records. And you sell more records, you want to sell tour tickets. And wow. so the goals keep going. But the point is that once you realize that, once you finish a goal, you realize that you've, you know, I metaphorically look at it like we've reached the top of a mountain. And it feels like the air is thin and fresh and vibrant, and you're at this the, this mountaintop for a moment, and you can't stay there too long, right? You don't want to get complacent, but just enough to kind of nurture the the end of that cycle and the process. And then you look up, and uh, there's another one, you know. And it could be the next song, the next artist, the next company, et cetera, et cetera. But there's always more. You, there's it's you never reach the top where it's like okay, I'm done. I call that dying. You know, okay. that's, when, that's when it's over. And, and to me, when you leave this earth, um, if you can leave some legacy, you know, things are better off than before you got here. And that's become a real priority of mine. If you look at my foundation and my books that I um, have, pu have had published by Inside Editions, the, one I, the two I did with Clint Eastwood and the one I did with Modern Drummer, uh, Crash, um, you know, they've been bestsellers, the money goes to charity. So these things to me represent like, okay, they're passions of mine. 
but they give a lot of value to people now and they'll outlive me. So they'll be giving a lot of value to people for decades. And then to me that that's fulfilling. I, I, I love how music certainly obviously is the foundational theme to every aspect of your life. And it's so robust but I just have to ask, the Clint Eastwood book, how does that tie in? Where does that fit? Yeah, that's a curveball to most people, right? Um, it ties in that the one of the things that I've done for many years since I was a kid to not have music related was collect different things that I enjoy. I collected baseball cards very seriously for a while. Um, and at one point, I, I was collecting for many years Clint Eastwood actual memorabilia, you know, like oh. authentic posters and and props and stuff and things that were just, I just really liked his films, right? It was just really as simple as that. I thought the artwork that a lot of his films had as far as how they portrayed the films theatrically and visually and artistically from the early spaghetti westerns with big, beautiful, hand-painted silver posters in Italy all the way to present day, I just was inspired by it. So I formed a collection and the collection got big enough and, and I was the only one really looking at the collection and I barely had time to even look at it. And I, it just hit me like, I, I remember it was like after I hit 40, it, I started to slow down a little on just like me, 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 you know, accomplish, accomplish, accomplish and take a breath for a second and go, wait a second, um, you know, what am I doing with this collection? Like if, if I can't share it, if I can't do something that other people can enjoy this from, it's really not anything that is inspiring me anymore, right? There's the acquisition that inspires you a little bit and then you see the piece in person, you think it's cool, you're like, wow, I've been looking for this for a year and it really is as beautiful in person and it'll look great displayed or, you know, it's great as part of the collection and has value, so it's an investment. But, you know, I needed to do something bigger. So uh, I'd never written a book at that time. So um, I looked at the process uh, as kind of like a record label process, which I did understand really well of, you know, you have a concept, you demo it. In the music business, you demo it. In the old days, anyway, it doesn't really apply today as much, but then um, you would demo it, get a label behind you, and the label would fund your record, right? The, the old model. Well, in the book world, it worked like that and still works like that. Uh, you, of course, you can self-publish, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to self-publish. I wanted to really, you know, my, my theory is go big or go home. So I wanted my book to be done like anybody else's book that I admired. I love the Tashin books that they put out. Uh, I love coffee table books. So long story short, it could be the whole podcast could literally just be on this book, right? So I'm going to cut it to the fact that I, the collection turned into the book. Um, I, I found a publisher that believed in me. The publisher said, we have to get Clint involved in this if it's really going to go anywhere and people are really going to be able to see it and, and wow. enjoy it. So I was able, through some connections of mine, get to Clint. He got involved in the book. Wow. And um, now we have Clint Eastwood Icon, which was my first book, November 3rd, 2009. It was published by Insight Editions. That sold out entirely. So in 2018, we did Icon, Clint Eastwood Icon, revised and expanded edition, which is still available. It's got 100 more pages approximately, 80 to 100 more pages. And, um, and then I did Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits, which is very much in the lane that you're familiar with of my career. Um, and that's how... 
That's how we got the Clint Eastwood book. If I were to follow you around for a day or a week, it seems like you have a very fun, passion-filled life. Is that the case today? And was that always the case? Well, it, it, it is the case, but there's a lot of stress in the life too. Uh, so it, it's the fun part of it is not entirely accurate, although compared to most jobs, it is fun. Uh, but fun to me is when I'm able to unwind and, and watch a great movie or go to the gym. Uh, you know, that that's fun. When I'm working, uh, I love what I do. I enjoy it. I'm extremely passionate about it. And uh, I'm very blessed to be able to have done it for the majority of my life. Um, but it's it's a lot of hard work. It's very stressful. It's very lot lot of long hours, um, and I've been able to grow into managing the stress because when you first experience stress, it kind of owns you for a while until you realize that you know it's it's a choice. It, you know it doesn't really exist, right? It only exists because we make it exist. But that's way easier said than done when you've got huge rock stars yelling and screaming or or they're stressed out and you've got to energize a, a team of people at one of my companies or a group of people I'm working with or myself in that moment uh, and, and get things done at, at record speed that are not easy to do. But as you get, as your career grows and grows and grows, the expectations for what you're going to deliver and when you're going to deliver them grows with it. And um, that's a lot to live up to every day. But you know, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I've been up for the challenge for most of my life and I'm very conscious of the work that has to go into it, the discipline, the results you have to achieve. Wow. And um, that's what I do. And I love it. I want to connect the dots from where you are today, everything in between, going back really to the very beginning. Uh, in the intro, I said you, you found yourself battling cancer at the age of two. Right. Certainly an age, I'm guessing you have no, no recollection or memory of that. What was the nature of the cancer first? I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, uh, cancer of the eye. As a result, um, they had to remove my right eye, so I've had a prosthetic eye. In the process of that, um, they clipped a, my eyelid muscle, and so for the beginning of my life, until I could afford many years later to have a corrective surgery, my lid was much more closed than it is now. Um, so even though it's not quite symmetrical today, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more natural looking than it was like the first 15 to 20 years of my life. So oh. I had a very, it was a very tough uh, upbringing, having the challenge of not seeing, having a prosthetic eye was very uncomfortable uh, for a lot of years. It's still not the most comfortable thing in the world, but it was much worse in the early days. You go for fittings to get a prosthetic eye because it's a removable prosthetic, and so you, so it, you actually have to get it fit. So, and as you're growing through those years, you're changing the fitting of it. Of course, they were trying to compensate for my uh, droopy lid. Um, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of a lot of kids, you know, kind of driving you crazy. Mm. Uh, my family was very loving and supportive. They got me through everything. My mom and dad, who were no longer with us, but. Um, Rita and Silviano Frangioni, two angels who um, are responsible for everything I've accomplished, and they got they got me through it. You know, we didn't have any means, right? We had one used car. My mom and I would take the bus wherever we had to go, and um, 
you know, it was just about, it was about the love and the, um, the, the, the faith, you know, like, you know, faith, people use the word faith all the time, right? You want to know faith. It's like you put it all out on the line when there's zero evidence that anything will be accomplished as a result of this sacrifice and this choice you're making of how you're going to use your time. And it's, it's faith in its fullest form when you have a, a physical deformity, uh, you're blind in one eye, you have not, no money at all, and you, uh, you know, and, and really the logic of the situation says, well, go get a job. You know, you need to make money, you need to kind of start making things happen. But I, you know, and I did have to do that for some of my early, early years, you know, supermarket and, and just stuff that I hated to do, but I had to, for moments, had to earn some income. I wasn't making much gigging. But I still, I did it all, right? And it's kind of metaphorical and very similar to how my life's evolved because I've always felt that it's important to multitask and not just have all your eggs in one basket. And that was learned from that very, very young age of going through these battles. So I would be gigging, putting together the band, booking the band. I'm 12, 13 years old, playing the clubs and going to school and getting good grades because that was my mom and dad's main focus. Um, and I have a small family. I have one brother, three years older than me. And, um, you know, there was just a lot of love, a lot of support. So I got through the torment and the trauma, I'll call it, which it very much was of, uh, of going, you know, through this in my early years. And music was a salvation. Music was an escape. I could practice the drums on my phone books and practice pad and uh, and no one would make fun of me or do anything and, and I was and I was fulfilled I liked it it wasn't just an escape it was a healthy outlet and it genuinely was something I really found that I loved to do at, at two years old when you were diagnosed was that also the time that the eye was replaced yeah they they found the cancer soon enough that they were able to contain it to the eye and, uh, and it was a very fast process, which also added to the trauma. We'll back up a second because there's a con, you know, they always say context is everything. And sure. that's absolutely true. So the context here that's, that's uh, of what happened is that my parents couldn't have kids for the first 20 years that they were married. They were married 48 years until the day my dad died. And so at the beginning of their marriage, they tried to have kids and the doctors had no explanation. So then... When my mom's 38 years old, they've already been married 15 years or so, um, and she has my brother, John. And then she's like, can't believe it. There's no explanation why she couldn't have him. There's no explanation why she just did have him. Then three years later, she has me. So the doctors say, look, you're 41, going on 42. You're not going to have any more kids. You know, We don't even know how you had these two and why (laughs) it took so long, Uh, but just enjoy them. And my parents were the most elated. You would have thought in today's terms that they won the lottery. That's how important family was and is wow. to them or is and was. And now you two years into this family that they've waited their entire lives for and that they're giving every ounce of their love and passion and, and, and comfort and kindness towards, the doctor says, your son might die. He has cancer. We don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, and so you can imagine, so that was in 1969. I mean, I remember many years of my life, my parents used to say, you know, there's a part of us 
we know we're going to die. Everybody dies. But there's a part of us that already did in 1969. It was devastating to them and, um, and to me, really. But they really had it worse than I did, having to suffer through um, you know, what, they, what that buildup was. So that's the context. And then they you know, were very nurturing through the years. And one of the big lessons was that they taught me never be a victim. Never, yes. feel, Let me hear don't this. ever feel sorry for yourself. I never had a handicap sign in my car. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things. I'm just saying that their philosophy that I was, you know, taught and believe uh, was that, you know, there are no victims. Just take every day that you're alive. Yes, you can, you can only see out of one eye. You still have everything else. There are people that have it much worse off than I do. And, um, and be thankful for what you have and make the most of it. So these were the sorts of dialogue, because when this happened at two and the eye was replaced at two, um, certainly I don't know what kind of memory you have of that, but they must have had the first conversation with you at four, six, eight years old, where, right? Like where it was really filling you in and yes. having these conversations, right? They had to fill you in on, on what happened. They did, and their dialogue would always look like you're no different than anyone else. Fantastic, yeah. You have one eye. Yes, you look a little different, but don't worry. Don't Just let it roll off your shoulders. You are a normal, healthy kid, and as long as you have everything else working for you, you uh, we'll deal with the eye, and let's go forward, and let's live our life. And they let me play ice hockey. They let me play baseball with a 90 mile an hour ball coming towards the only eye I had left. I mean, it was some crazy stuff when I look back at how much they walked the walk on this kid saying, okay, you're normal. But then, you know, they would always limit it. They would always kind of get to a point where they would go, you know what? I don't think this is like, yeah, we want them to be normal, but this is getting dangerous now. <laughs> so they, um, you know, there was, we were all learning, right? I mean, who's prepared for that? There's no course you know, you're, if your son has cancer and he's two and you've waited all your life and like, you know, blah, you know all these yeah. all these elements to it, then here's what you do. No, mm -hmm. that's, where, that's where you find your faith. You find as much data as you can and you experientially search your heart and give it everything you can. You're going to make mistakes. Just try not to make them twice. Uh, and, um, and then you just take every day and, you know, do it again. So you were, you had the amazing benefit of having your parents speaking to you uh, positively and framing everything for you, telling you how, how perfect everything is and you're all right and don't play the victim. But now personally, behind closed doors when you were six, eight, 10, 12, and 15, were there times when you just beat yourself up and felt different and, and wound up feeling like a victim and had to get out of that mindset? Or were you really protected of it? No, there were times. Um, and absolutely. And, and, you know, there were a lot of sad moments. I mean, they, your parents can love you and support you. And I don't take that for granted. I actually, as I got more into nonprofit work in the last 10 years and would speak a lot for different charities to, in some cases, mm -hmm. underprivileged kids, kids that have it much worse than I had it, um, whether it's be physically or whether it's just the opportunities that they that they're struggling with having, they're in crime-ridden neighborhoods or whatever. I've seen how many lack of families there are, how many kids there are without parental guidance. I grew up; that's all I knew because that's what I saw. 
And I was insulated in that world of like, you know, I, I'm 10, eight, nine, as you're saying, you know, you're driving, you know, you're, you're walking and you're living in your neighborhood and with your family and that's what you know. And so until you get a little older, then you start to see the world. And we didn't have the internet then, of course. So, you know, you, you see magazines, you watch a little TV, you read books and you have your family. And the most influential component of that, of course, is absolutely your family and then your neighborhood and environment and school, elementary school and junior high school. So all of those factors um, were what I knew. And as I did this, this speaking and to other charities and other types of neighborhoods and children, I realized how fortunate I was at a whole nother level because I did have my parents there for me. They stayed together as a couple and they were focused mm -hmm. on their children. They made us their priority. And it wasn't Again, I'm not trying to overstate this, but it wasn't buying things and all that stuff. It was just paying attention and really being in touch with like, okay, what are they doing now? What choices are they making? Are they studying? Are they eating right? And um, are they spending too much time with the bad kids in the neighborhood? Like just really being the best parents that they could. And it really, it turned out amazing, you know, the way that they loved us and, and got us through that, even though they weren't self-help people. They didn't believe in, in any of that. Honestly, they were old school, depression era, hardworking, loving people. They just had hugely kind hearts and they loved their children. Um, mm. Other than that, there was no other background in any, in any kind of psychology or anything like that. Yeah. But as I was growing up, yeah, it was really, you know, they, they, you can't, they can't protect you from walking to school or being at school and having people not like you or girls not paying any attention to you because you look different. Um, they can't, you know, they're not in the playground with you. They're not, there's dynamics and energy as we all know that when we go to school, it just, it is what it is, right? It's how people respond. It's how you interact. It's how you respond to, to, you know, some of the behavior and, um, and all of that, all of those dynamics were very challenging for me. And, um, I'm sure they were for a lot of people. So I would go home and I would want to be smart and study. And I would want to be, I wanted to practice. I didn't have a drum set. We couldn't afford one for a long time. So I practiced on phone books and practice pads and pillows. And, um, and I listened to a lot of music and it really helped me because I was becoming without really realizing it, I was becoming somewhat of an expert in music just listening to so much of it and reading music because I played a little piano, took lessons and learning the drums and reading music for the drums. I was understanding when I was hearing even like a Led Zeppelin song, mm. whatever that I really enjoyed hearing. Whoa. I was understanding at eight years old, nine years old, you know, the arrangement, That's like, amazing. you know, because I had that background learning an instrument. Like I was able to go, Oh wow. They doubled the chorus there. That's kind of interesting. And kind of look at it from a different view and all of that early um, knowledge, I'll call it really added up later on to helping me achieve things at a younger age than, than um, I thought even possible because I got a head start and I didn't even realize it. So fantastic. I want to connect the dots and make the point that even today, I'm sure in your current life, and I know my current life, um, I am constantly in learning and educating mode, uh, especially what I talk about as a podcast host. And I spend a lot of time uh, in, in uh, communities and in groups and with other hosts and talking about the industry. And one thing I do, and I always try to preach as much as I can, is 
if you want to perfect your craft, and really this is something as most things are that you can perfect with time, commitment, energy, passion, consistency, effort. Uh, this, this medium, for example, if you're a host and you want to improve and get better, um, listen to other podcast shows. It doesn't matter which ones or whose. There's 800,000 out there on any app these days. Pick one every day. Listen for five, 10 minutes and educate yourself. So I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, it's just uh, when I was a child, I wasn't doing that. I, I had to, you know, I, I needed some decades in order to get to this place, but you found it early. You were, you were doing gigs at 12 and consulting at 16. What was, with all that and with the, the juxtaposition of saying that, you know, not everybody is nice in school and that sort of a thing, with those two aspects, what was your, as a teenager, what was your belief about the world in which you were living? Uh, at that age, um, I felt it was it was tough, but I felt that uh, I was very protective of myself. I just kept to myself. I was really it was kind of ironic because I really was a loner emotionally and um, and I'll even say physically to a certain point, meaning like I wasn't hanging out with a lot of people, but I was always like in bands and on stages. So like there were a million people around. So, and I was class president for one year in high school. So like the, it looked like I had a lot of entourage or, mm. or friends, but they were really, they were just, a, you know, they were acquaintances or people that were listening to whatever band I was in at the time or you know, it was, I wasn't really close to anybody other than my mom and dad. Um, and then I had a girlfriend, I had my first girlfriend finally in high school at some point, like later in high school. And, and, um, you know, and that was, it was really, I was really isolated. I think that's how I dealt with it. That's how I felt safe at that time is that I, I wanted to control, you know, not getting hurt all the time mm. and not being subject to it. So I was just really focused on, you know, I, it, it pushed me to overachieve, you know, like I go out to do a drumming gig at an early age. Like I always was playing kind of the best that I could at that moment, you know, it was obviously not great then, but it was the best that I could. And within the context of the music, I was, I was always kind of getting the result. Um, years later, I went to a great self-help uh, forum and uh, they said the words results, not reasons. And, uh, and that really resonated with me. And I've used that saying ever since I heard it that day, because I had ended, because that summed my life up. Like some, that was in, that was my credo back when I was a little kid, but I never phrased it like that, but that's really what I was doing. I just all, and I think that came from my parents as well. Like really like, you know, don't talk, walk, don't say be, you know, and, and those things were really impactful. I love that. Results, not reasons, meaning reasons slash excuses, right? Yeah, because everybody loves to come in. You know, I've had companies, you mentioned Audio One, which I formed 25 years ago. I sold it last year, but I'm still involved oh. in it. Um, but I built it up to a very successful company. It's still very successful, thank goodness. And, um, and you know, we've had, you know, at times over 100 people working for us. And um, so, you you know, you just you, you learn all kinds of different personalities and, um, uh, and, and people just 
things you never even realized you you know you were going to learn right and so i saw how different people react to different situations how to get strengths out of people and 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 let their weaknesses be developed without hurting the rest of the team treating people a certain way nurturing them in many ways and understanding what you know how how do you get the team like i know how to get myself on a mission and go from a to z but now you got to get other people who are not wired the same way as i am and uh, and so i just learned over the years that not everybody subscribes to results not reasons i'd be in my office someone would come in all right give me a download what did we finish the project today and i'd hear this whole story that just started to sound like you know that's how i was hearing it because it was so you know, abstract in terms of all of these, you know, and then, you know, we almost fell off the ladder and then, you know, we were missing three connectors. And like, finally, I was just like, did you, f- at 8 a.m. you left at 5 p.m. the project had to be done. Is it done? Yes or no? You know, and then it was like, well, kind of like, ah! yeah. so you just learn like, you know, results, not reasons is very, very powerful. And I think that one of the things that helps me describe my philosophy to others when they're working with me in in a company setting especially is I look at work in terms of the, the, the day and the scheduling like LeBron James looks at a basketball game. When that buzzer sounds, you're prepared, you're ready, it's game time. You're not on your cell phone. You're not thinking about what you're gonna have for dinner. You're not posting on social media. You are on the court and you're there to score as many points as you can and make sure that at the end of 48 minutes of that basketball game, you've given it everything you've got, you've left nothing on the court, and you are ahead and win. And you do that Hmm. one game at a time. And so I think a lot of people, when they look at the workforce that they're in and the job that they're in, they don't see it that way. And taking a call and talking to your wife for half an hour or – you know, taking long lunches, they think that's like getting away with something. It's like, that's the worst thing you could do because think about you watching LeBron and there's two minutes left in the game and he's on his phone. Like it would be preposterous to think that, but yet in the workforce, so many people I find can can go there. And so my mindset is from the moment my calendar starts each day, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's seven days a week, for many years it was seven days a week, when it, when it hits that first meeting, phone call, or scheduled time in my office till it's done, that's on the court. Then on top of that, when you're working with certain artists on certain projects, which a lot of my life I have been in this situation, you're, kinda, you're, you're done in your calendar, then the phone rings. And it's 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, whatever, you're back on the court. You could be in a movie that you have to step out of. You could be at a wonderful dinner. You know, there's all kinds of things. So the word sacrifice in the career that I've chosen kind of goes hand in hand. And you have to embrace it. You don't have to always like it, but you have to embrace it because it comes with the business. And, um, you you know, because you're serving, right? You know, I'm not the rock star. I'm serving the rock star. And mm-hmm. I'm making sure that my role in that I've been hired for uh, is you know going above and beyond the call, and that doesn't have a nine to five, you know, system. And that's the music business. That's yeah. the creative arts business in general. You know, you make films. They have to film at two o'clock in the morning. You know, you write books. You get inspired at nine at night. You write through the whole night. I mean, that's the creative arts business. 
You are on paper and certainly here in person. Um, you strike me as the quintessential entrepreneur. You have, you have several magnificent titles, many successes, um, a drummer, a musician, an engineer, a writer, uh, an author, uh, all of these things. You've sold a business, which in and of itself is extraordinary. Twice. Twice. Well, yeah, I sold Pro Media, and then I, which is I, I developed ProToolsTraining.com which uh, there was no, I, I was one of the, the first guys to work on and launch Pro Tools. I worked with the guys at DigiDesign oh my back. God. Evan and, and uh, Peter started DigiDesign in the 80s. It was a sample editing program. And I got involved very, very early and it developed into Sound Tools, then Pro Edit Pro Deck, then Pro Tools, then Pro Tools went from four to 16 to 48 to, to 64 to 128 tracks to now infinite amounts of tracks. Uh, through all those years, which was over 30 years, uh, I was working very closely. And so I became, Audio One had a division where we were installing Pro Tools studios and systems wow. in the late 90s. And we were number one in the world and um, for four years in a row. And in that, I realized that there wasn't, uh, there wasn't anything being done about educating. So here we are installing hundreds and hundreds of Pro Tools studios and systems, but a lot of people didn't know really how to use it like they needed to. So I came up with the idea. I, I learned it from looking at how Microsoft handled education. They always had MCSE programs, which I went through one of them for a period while back in the NT40 days. And I was, um, you know, I was really surprised, like our industry doesn't have anything like that. So I developed it and then took it to Avid. By then they had been sold design to Avid, wow. and actually created and launched Pro Tools training for the industry. Avid took it over, of course, because it needed to come from the company or we weren't going to grow it. Um, and so uh, I ended up having the most locations for Pro Tools training because I launched it with them. And it was a very successful business. And a few years ago, I sold it. It was ProToolsTraining.com and ProMedia was the company that yeah. all the Pro Tools training worked under that umbrella. So I sold that, and then last year, Audio One, and uh, now I have Frangioni Media, All Access IDA, um, and I have uh, Modern Drummer, of course, and AudioSwag.rocks, which is uh, swag for, uh, you know, just cool swag for studio banter. Like we have a, a Pro Tools mug. Do I have, oh yeah, there you go. This is Audio Swag. They get a Pro Tools session. Oh, that's a cool mug. mug. It that's is. a and cool mug. Love and, and we're selling a ton of them. It's audioswag.rocks. We're selling a ton of them and people love it. It's like I came up with the idea because when you're in the studio, there's so much pressure all the time and so much intensity much of the day that that's like an icebreaker. Somebody walks in, they're all fired up. They look on the console. They look on the screen. They're like, how'd you get the Pro Tools session on the cup? Right, it's a different session, right? But it kind of looks the same because yeah. the waveforms and the colors. And you're like, no, 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 that's not that session. That's just the Pro Tools. And people like it breaks the ice. So I thought it was kind of cool, and it's done really well. And we're still building it up. It's a fairly new company, um, and we have shirts that have the waveforms on it, and hoodies, and said shirts say producer and sound guy, sound girl. Like we're selling his and hers to people, and it's just you know it's it's the opposite end of the spectrum. We talk about that's the fun side, right? So fun to me is another business <laughs> that's providing fun. So someday I'll wear the shirt and smile, but for now I'm trying to let lots of other people have that fun. And uh, so those are the companies and yeah. you know, every day is a lot of work. 
The, the nature of my brand, The Hidden Entrepreneur, was founded on the premise that I spent a lifetime hiding behind fear, using that as an excuse um, for everything I did. Can you share with us a time that comes to mind where you, in the course of your day, in your business, in your life, you were confronted with a boatload of fear and you knew you could have gone in one or two directions, but you powered through? Lots of examples. I mean, a big one was I was in college and uh, doing really well. I was going to two, I was going to Northeastern Business School. I'm from Boston, right? So North, Northeastern Business School and New England, New England Conservatory of Music in a dual program. They, they had, they offered that at the time. So I, I first went to New England Conservatory. I didn't like just being in a music school. I was learning and spending too much time on things that I was never going to apply that I didn't want to put my time into, you know, Barokian, uh, you know, string quartet, you know, you know, music and teaching and things that just had, I had no interest in. So I found Northeastern. I had a lot of interest in business, of course. By that time, I'd already been booking bands for years and, and done a lot of deals and contracts, basic stuff, but nonetheless business. And so um, I, I really liked the program and I was going into my third year. And, I, and my parents were all about get a degree, get a degree. All you have to do is get a degree. My brother, three years older than me, has four degrees from Harvard. So he writes, so talk about the gold standard. He went to undergrad, MD, PhD, HST. Jeez. He's a Harvard uh, yeah. oncologist wow. and um, had inspired by my cancer, right? Being three years older than me, he okay. was very affected, turned it into an oncology wow. career at Harvard. And wow. so the bar was high. And... Um, and there's just the two of us, and education's number one. And I get the gig with Aerosmith. And I, I have my consulting company. I had 1-800-345-MIDI, MIDI, because it was yep. MIDI Consulting. So that's going well. I'm going to school. And then, then Aerosmith comes along uh, as an opportunity. And they offered me no – it wasn't a gig like they, they said, you know, we're going to bring you on full time. You're set. Da, da, da. It was just I got a project with them, a little one. And then I got another one. And I saw the writing in my mind, like I could be, I could be with these guys working a lot on projects and instead of it onesie twosie, actually being their guy. Okay. But it was a, it was a wing and a prayer. It wasn't an offer. So I had to leave school to do that. Or I had to just let the Aerosmith opportunity go and, um, and stay in school because it would it couldn't do both because the Aerosmith opportunity, if, if it manifested, was going to be 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week. So um, I took a shot. I was very scared. And uh, I went with the Aerosmith and for months and months uh, did just had little things with them. And I had no idea if it was going to work or not. And then it worked and I ended up being their in-house guy and kind of how I envisioned the best case scenario turned out that way. And I was able to to manifest it. No accident, right? That's what we're saying. You, no accident. You, I mean, no. we have to visualize it. I know we agree on that. Wrapping, Very much so. And you have to put the work in and you have to really just be there. Yeah. To, to bring this conversation to a close, my goodness, just like all of our lives, at any moment, your life could have gone a, a, a completely different way right? What do you attribute to your success? Well, it's a combination. I think following your passion 
and putting the work in, not being afraid to pivot and course correct as things um, as things come up that don't go the way you want them to in that moment, and you got to go a different way, and you got to be able to figure out, you know, is it for the best or do I need to find another way around this? Uh, always putting others first, always serving and looking at the whatever I'm doing for a business or a project as what is going to make the person paying me, uh, you know, happy. What's what's going to deliver and over deliver for them so that they really get the value that they expect or more. Um, and I think those are some of the important principles. But I can't I can't overstate hard work, disciplined action, knowing your stuff. You know, uh, in being having so much of my career being based on technology and consulting and using the equipment and building studios for people and systems, they're really trusting that I have a lot of knowledge and certainly more than they have. Uh, and the interesting thing is, in order for me to live up to that, I have to surround myself with people much smarter than me, which I've been able to do a lot of the time. So that cycle of, you know, learn, implement, take it to another level, implement better, learn more, and then always keeping the core of it as serving, um, I think is, is important in um, you know, success. My goodness, it's David Frangioni. Thank you kindly, sir. This has been a treat. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be on your show, Josh. Um, everyone listening, thank you for taking the time, and uh, it was great being here. I appreciate it. I hope we can do this again in the future. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface for who you are and what you're about, but this has been extraordinary. So thanks again. And thank you everybody for tuning in, whether it's here live on Facebook or you're catching the recording in its native podcast form. I so appreciate you tuning in and spending your time. We're going to do it again before too long. Before we do go get them. Thanks for listening to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.